This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and print magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, the digital fashion, beauty and wellness, entertainment and lifestyle publication. And on this podcast, you'll get inside the story with the tastemakers and the trends that matter right now. From the actors you enjoy watching in TV and film to the most influential fashion and accessories designers, the costume designers responsible for all the on-screen style that makes its way straight to the streets, the beauty pros who set the trends in hair and makeup, the culinary creators who dream up all you want to eat and drink, the wellness experts who innovate in self-care and more, it's conversations with creatives, and we're exploring the origins or game-changing ideas and careers with those who are pushing culture forward. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products with our high-low approach to style and the belief that magic exists in the diversity of mix. We're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. Get inside the story right here. It's Story and Rain Talks. One of our very favorite actors is Genevieve Angelson for the passion and intelligence she brings to her work. Versatile Genevieve was once identified by her manager as someone who could play a doctor masterfully. And this year she did just that as head of holistic medicine, Dr. Mia Castries on NBC's New Amsterdam. Most recently, Angelson can be seen as Alanis Wheeler on Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. Sitting down for episode 122 of the podcast, the New York City native was dressed in a jacket joyfully snagged from set in Gilead's signature green. Listen in to the actor who skillfully paints a picture of her craft, share details for how she approached playing this season's key character, how costumes played a part, and she also dishes details behind the scenes on the beloved critically acclaimed series. We discuss Genevieve's path from Upper East Side Prep School Brearley to Wesleyan to Tish to the stage, to TV and film, and the limiting self-beliefs she ultimately broke free from during her last year in college, causing her to attack her pursuit of acting voraciously. We talk co-workers and mentors, her bi-coastal identities and lifestyle and her tribe, and how writing is fulfilling to her. We discuss the challenges of downtime, her best role to date, and how she chooses and refuses projects. We talk about her role in Apple TV Plus's The After Party and how she created her character Indigo. We get into Amazon's Flack, playing opposite Anna Paquin, and how she will always make time to do theater. We discuss her feelings about the inherent lack of control and role portrayal in TV and film versus the stage. We talk about The Handmaid's Tale's themes of childbirth and fertility, including the diverse fan reaction to the show's hot-button topic. We talk about what it's like to work with an intimacy coach for upcoming film, which brings me to you, and what to expect from that project. We talk the industry post-Me Too and the origins of her activism and why it's so important to her. We get into what's been rewarding, Christmas trees in October, learning new things for growth and fulfillment, who she's dying to play, and so much more, along with savvy advice, savvy, savvy advice for actors starting out. A gorgeously honest and robust conversation with one of the most delightful and talented people, one who is destined for so much great work ahead. Let's get to it. Here's Genevieve Angelson. 
Hi, how are you? Oh, well, how are you? It's so good to it's see so you. It's so good to see you. Um, it's so great to be sitting down with you for the podcast. When we first Thank met, so it was 2019 and you were part of a beauty shoot that we did for the magazine. There's so much to catch up on aside from, you know, just telling your story, of course. You look so gorgeous. This okay. background and your frames, it's like awesome. I just came from the gym. What jacket are you wearing? I love this. This is actually a jacket from the show. This was one of my costumes. And I was like, y'all, can I buy this? And I was Genevieve, I have to say the costumes on the show are so great. I always tune into that kind of thing. That's like so my thing. Yeah, it's so great. So great. The costume designer is a woman named Leslie Cavanaugh. And I can, I think, quite accurately um, thank her for so much of the inspiration behind who I played because she was sort of the person who came at me with, you know, here's the thing about Mrs. Wheeler. I think because she lives in Toronto and it's not actually Gilead, she's a little fabulous. She's so fabulous. I just kind of took that and was like, yeah, that's for me. I'm going to really espouse all of these Iliadian social structures, but the clothes I'm going to save. I'm going to just keep what I like and leave the rest. And um, It's interesting. Further along in the podcast, I have a question for you that speaks to exactly that. Um, But let's start at the beginning. Like me, you grew up in New York City. You went to Brearley, then Wesleyan, then Tish. Genevieve, how was it that you came to know that you would seriously pursue acting? I wasn't happy. I think I sort of pursued um, like safe, reasonable avenues for a career and a future as far as I could pursue them while remaining within a window that I imposed for myself based, I think, on like low self-esteem and limiting self-beliefs on when I would be young enough to still become an actor. So to explain, like, I always wanted to be an actor as a little kid. My parents wanted me to be safe and fruitful and thought that was like, probably not a great idea. Um, But they were basically like, look, after you go to college, your life is like, up to you. And so I went to college. And I honestly, I think it was really as I was like a senior in college, I was like, I'm like drinking a lot. (laughs) And I am pretty, I think I like have a lot of this like wildness inside of me, like this temperament. And I think that like what I'm really looking for is like expression and connection. And I think if I don't pursue this art thing, I could probably really keep drinking. So um, implode, just implode. Yeah. Or explode. explode, Right. (laughs) Um, I, yeah, I think I thought I was probably at the ripe old age of 22, like too old to become an actor. Um, but that turned out to be garbage and I just, I was good at it. I was good at it. So I kept doing it. You're one of three sisters. How did your sisters characterize you in terms of your creative side growing up? That is such 
a great question because I had a sister who was the creative one. I think I was like, like my oldest sister was like the one who got good grades. My middle sister was the creative one. And I I was like, I was charming. I was the third. I was like, I don't know, maybe the kind of like boy crazy weirdo. (laughs) I was going to say, was it hard being the creative kid in your family? But no, in fact, you had a sister who was uh, stepping into her creativity before you did, I guess. I want to say it was very hard to be the creative kid yeah. in my family. It just wasn't me. <laughs> it was someone else. Um, and I think given how much I admired my big sister and how talented she was, it actually was hard for me to be a creative because I just thought she was better at everything, which to be fair, I think she really was. But I suffer from like over conscientiousness to my environment to the detriment of like my own inner creative. And so um, it took me a while to catch up. I get that. I get that. I often ask our guests about how their physical environment affects them. Being from New York and living in LA and spending time in both places, does each place help to feed your creative soul? And do you prefer one over the other? Do you feel like two different people uh, given the coast that you're on? I just, yeah. How does your environment I have to interrupt you to tell you that these are the best questions I've been asked in an interview in like seven to eight years. Good job. I, I was so looking um, okay. forward to this conversation. I knew we were going to have a great one. I um, have actually been the true by coastal person for the last decade where I genuinely spent six months. In yeah. Six months in I LA. did it for three years. I used to do, I used to do it in a crazy way. I had an apartment and a car in LA for three years and would go back and forth every two weeks. And then for about six mm. years, I was just going back and forth all the time. So I understand. So you're six months on in New York, six months in LA yeah. for a decade. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And um, <clears throat> I would say that the way it feels to me, is like, Growing up in New York City, I was highly influenced by my environment because I was really surrounded by excellence. I was surrounded in a city by people who had come there because they were the best at whatever they were, or, you know, in my like elite private school, all girls environment, just high competition, um, high expectation of performance. And I would say that that really handicapped what I think is like a very important trust in making a mess and failing. And so in that way, I think it really, even though I was surrounded by theater and surrounded by like the intelligentsia, like I, I, I do think that it, um, I do think that it encumbered my That's artists. interesting. Um, whereas, but okay. whereas, right. Whereas once I kind of like grew up and got a, a more of a, a sense of myself, particularly in such a like wildly creative place like Wesleyan, um, that's really when it came to life for me. At the moment, I feel like a spy. I feel like six months of the year, I am um, a spy from this kind of like earthy plant medicine, like LA, very like vibey. I'm super LA when I'm in LA. And when I go to New York, I'm kind of like a spy on behalf of those people who like believe in expanding your consciousness and like raising your vibration. And then the other six months of the year, I am in LA as the like crunchy New York times reading snob, um, like bleeding heart liberal, like, um, you know, knows everything, know it all, know everything, knows everything. (laughs) 
I can see that. You describe that so clearly, so well. And what's important to you in terms of the people that you surround yourself with? Are you someone who believes it's important to surround yourself with like-minded energy or is it not about that? Wildly. I love this question. I have the rarest thing in LA, which is a community. I have a group of friends who are friends with each other. And so we really hold each other accountable to like our process, our highest selves, our vulnerability, our authenticity, our um, our greatness, like our not standing in our own way or not believing in ourselves, our belief in our abundance. And then in New York, I would say I don't so much have that, but I do have people who like whose brains delight me, whose taste like just ravishes me, whose senses of humor split me in two. One of my best friends in New York is um, Adam Rath, who uh, is a writer for Town and Country. He's one of the editors of Town and Country. And I could listen to him. (laughs) I I, I, I could just listen to him do nothing but speak all day. And that, I mean, that's just my favorite brain food. You're a published writer, speaking of that speaking of how did those opportunities come to you and do you have plans to write for tv and film i could so see that big time that's so interesting well i will never say never but i never um (laughs) but never i would never say never but i have a little insecurity around making stories up fictionally that fit like three act structure and the stuff that I assume everyone else studied and I didn't, even though I read 365 scripts a year, I write essays and journalistic articles because it like really satisfies the part of my brain that's not getting satisfied by acting. So, um, you know, I did go to Brearley and I did go to Wesleyan and I didn't study acting there. I studied history and English and you know, the international cinema and to have all of that glorious richness and not employ it really stifles me. So I actually like to take a break from the TV and film at all and just kind of employ those tools. I like to ask this question of our guests as well. Is there anyone that you've worked with to date that has made a positive impression on you in terms of how they do their work or how they see the world? Oh, I'm going to so regret not having the perfect answer to this question. I remembered learning an enormous amount from David Hyde Pierce when we did um, Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike on Broadway. I had just graduated from the grad acting program at NYU. And what I saw in this man who is as pro as they come was on stage an inability to lie. Everything he said was just breathing and telling the truth. And it came out differently or the same every time, but every time it was the truth and every time it was hilarious and effortless and simple. And, you know, there I was being such a perfectionist about all of these tools that I had acquired in graduate school and like warming up perfectly and doing movement practices perfectly. And here were these really, really, really masterful actors who just got to work, showed up and walked on stage and didn't have to do all of the like ABCs of like, this is how you get an A as an actor. And then they were outstanding. And then off stage, he was, you know, 
as kind or kinder to the, you know, cleaning staff of the theater as he was to the director. And so I would say that's a very easy answer of someone who was wildly worth emulating. And I'm just going to have the deepest regrets about not, I got to tell you though. It's hard. You've worked with so many wonderful people. It's hard to, that's a hard question to answer on. About it though, because I really want to, uh, I mean, I have adored so many people. I really want to throw the love around. I will say there is nothing like doing theater in Chicago. If you're, if you're just someone who loves the boards, like go to Chicago there's no ego. Everyone is such a pro, so talented. And like, you know, no one is doing it for money or fame. They're just pro. It's like such a humble, solid place to like really, really, really do. That's fantastic advice coming from you. Uh, You had mentioned school just a second ago, but I'm trying to understand what was the Genevieve like at Wesleyan compared to the Genevieve at Tisch? Oh, that's so interesting. I could tell you like Genevieve versus now and Tisch. Yeah. 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 Genevieve at Wesleyan was like, you have to understand at rarely like, gosh, even at Wesleyan and even at Tisch, I had not yet gone through, (laughs) I'm just going to take a big swing here. I know this is a New York podcast, but I hadn't yet gone through my Saturn return. And I was still, which is uh, for the uninitiated, like that period between kind of 27 and 33, where um, you kind of get your ass handed to you. And the things that you're doing that are not wise, uh, like in the long term, sort of get served to you on a very painful platter of like, um, these are the ways you need to get out of your own way if you want to mature into an adult that has any chance at all. Um, And what I think I was doing a lot leading up to that point was like trying to make my insides match my environment. And so at Brearley, I was really, really like trying to fit in with like these girls who were I thought like more scholarly than I was certainly like older money, richer than I was. Um, and at Wesleyan, it was like, Oh my gosh, all of these kids are so cool. Know about all the latest bands, like do all the drugs and smoke all the cigarettes. And I need to just keep up with them and like know everything about every single filmmaker that was ever, you know, made a film. And I think at NYU, it was just this kind of, nobody wants to see an actor who's a faker. Like nobody wants to see someone who's going to get a good grade or do a good job. People want to see humanity or, you know, humanity at the very least, like wild out of this world, bizarre bananas talent is, is what I saw in other people. There were classmates of mine who could make insanity happen the likes of which like could never fit into a character on stage and so like will only ever be known by the 16 of us in that class and I think what I had was a lot of meeting myself imposter who was terrified of what she would reveal if she was really really vulnerable Mm. and that's where I think I learned how and how to like build my self-esteem up in the absence of knocking it all down, knocking down like all of the crutches and, and structures and get back in the saddle, riding the horse of like, I know that to walk into an audition room and get the job, I have to believe I'm the shit. Right. Like, if I don't yeah. believe it, no one else is. So um, well, I just 
like burn the house down and build it up again. And with that, how have you learned to prepare for your roles? What's most important to you in terms of your process? Hmm. Do you know, I actually think the most important step isn't what happens once you get the job. It's like in the nine months of auditioning for other things that you spend practicing and practicing and practicing and honing and honing and honing and getting so much more easeful with your breath and so much less like mask-y, like so much more natural, doing less, doing less, doing less, doing less, getting closer to the truth, getting better at making choices that get you in trouble. It's like in all of those jobs you don't book that you think oh my God, I poured my heart into that. And I don't even know if anyone watched the tape. That's actually where I get to be such a good actor that like by the time I show up for Handmaid's Tale, I've got stripes and I've got chops because of, you know, 18 Peacock shows and four (laughs) HBO Max miniseries that I didn't book. So I actually think that is where, and if, by the way, staying with the coach, staying with the, the people who you coach with so you can practice with each other, putting your friends on tape, having your friends put you on tape, watching each other's tapes, like staying in the gym, doing your reps. That's, that is where I become the actor that I'm so proud to then like show when I actually am working. So many actors listening to this and hearing this from you. It's wonderful what you're sharing with the people that are, that are starting out. It's just not, it's not useless. Yeah. It's, not, it's useless. not. It feels, but like, it's only useless if you decide that you are an actor or not an actor based on whether or not, you know, a producer at NBC decides that you're the right person for this particular sitcom. And that just is like, not it. I am obsessed with this thing. I am obsessed with this art form. I, I, I am obsessed with it for me. You know, you got to just assume even at the top of your game, like you're going to get 10% of the jobs, right? And so like, for me, when I get the audition, it's like, I am done when I'm happy with it because I gave a great performance. I'm done then. I don't like what happens after that. I'm done. I did it. I, I, I did the assignment the way that I would do it. And it's really like none of my business after right. that. And in the long arc of this career of Genevieve who dies an actor when she's hopefully, you know, 106. <laughs> You're talking about how auditioning is worthwhile and it serves you somewhat on the same topic. How do you like to spend your time between roles? Is, is that important to you? Balance, for example, how your downtime supports you when you are working? Um, downtime is hard. Downtime is like the thing that I have had the biggest learning curve with because listen, I, I, I'm like a workaholic. I'm an Aries. I am, I am obsessed with playing with a toy and I want something to do. And it, and it paralyzes me to not feel like I'm in control of the doing it. Sorry. Historically it has now what it really looks like is basking in the community that I mentioned and discovering my pleasure. And that was actually like a really big part of it was like really the spiritual assignment. I feel like that went along with doing Handmaid's Tale is that when I wasn't 
on set making one of the most highly acclaimed shows ever on television. I was in a lot of unstructured downtime in a city that I kind of lost interest in after a while with no friends because everyone else was working when I wasn't working. So it was this invitation to be like, what do you love? What Where were you, you like shooting? You? They're shooting okay, in Toronto. Toronto. Okay. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was there for like the better part of four months. So, and, and, you know, my character is really significant, but in terms of airtime, she shows up for, you know, like two, two to three scenes per yeah. episode. So that leaves a lot of, a, a, a very wide invitation for um, me being the architect of <laughs> my life. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, completely. Uh, completely. Yeah. So I got deeply, deeply into breath work. I cultivated a daily rigorous breath work practice. I delighted in shopping. I, you know, I delighted in like discovering new neighborhoods. I discovered new podcasts that I love. I took long walks. I took a lot of mushrooms. <laughs> I, <laughs> all the things. I just, all the things. What are the challenges that you face in the work that you do? And what are the greatest rewards? The greatest reward for me really comes from um, that like ineffable, indescribable magic of, I got it, I got it, I got it. That like elusive kind of like fairy dust feeling of like, that was the moment where I had my self-consciousness turned off. I had my witness turned on. I melded with the character. I breathed and told the truth. And I made choices that told this story in the most interesting, sad, funny, humble way it could have been told. That's the greatest reward. And that is my reward, whether I am doing a reading for two people in my parents' living room or a black box in Chicago, or I'm doing it on, you know, this very highly watched TV show. That's the reward that no one can take away from you. That is the artist and her mastery. That is the fucking fuel that keeps you going. And the greatest challenges for me really have to do with, um, I think historically they've had to do with what to do when you're not working, but really when you are working, what's the word I'm looking for? The very literal constructs of like how the workday works are a challenge. You as an actor start work at 5 a.m. on a Monday and might end work at 5 a.m. on a Friday. And then the week starts right. again. And I suffer profoundly from insomnia and all of the reps and all of the hours and all of the plans and all of the training and all of the know-how and all of the inspiration is absolutely inaccessible when you haven't slept. Insomnia is this albatross that I carry with me into every job. And every job is like 30% the thing that I did the way that I wanted to, 30% the thing that happened spontaneously that I never could have planned, and 30% the, the thing I have to live with because I had insomnia and it was just the best I could do that day. And it feels like a failure and it feels embarrassing and it feels like the world is going to see the bags under my eyes and the world is going to see me not stick the landing in these scenes. And it's just, it's just acceptance of what it is. Like everybody has the perfect fantasy in their head of like, 
the art as they're going to make it, whether you're a filmmaker or a, you know, a, a painter or a writer. And then there's the art that actually comes yeah. out. And sometimes you just have to live with it. You know, politics and activism uh, is a part of your life to what do you attribute this to? When did it begin for you? I think that's growing up in New York city. For me, it was growing up in New York yeah. city and also probably, you know, like the Judaism for me, there's like a, I, I have a genetic, I have a, a genetic feeling of beauty. Mm. Um, and my, my, my feeling of duty is like, I have a lot. Other people don't, it's my job to share mm. it. And it's my job to like take a lot and help. And so when it comes to something like voting, it's like, it's not, that's my, that's my civic duty. That's my patriotic duty. And this really kind of, it seems very like unpopular way. I have to say, I love America. I like love this country. I'm, I love like purple mountains, majesty and amber waves of grain. And I also, my heart breaks for it. And I, and I, my heart breaks for it, but I think it comes from this feeling of like, I don't know. It, I, I have a very strong sense of civic responsibility and yeah. You were sort of born that way <laughs> for a number of reasons. Besides voting, what issues are important to you right now? Well, I would say uh, incarceration is a thing that, that uh, troubles me deeply. Um, my big sister is my hero. She works for the Innocent Project in New Orleans. Just... Oh God, the, 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 uh, I would say racism and, um, punishment in this country are, are a big problem for me. Abortion, I, not surprisingly is a, is a thing about which I feel profound sadness. And then also just like the protection of democracy period, gerrymandering, you know, the state of Wisconsin was like a very upsetting runoff for me. I think the thing, I think one of the issues that found me the most at a loss is that I have a sort of naive Woodward Bernstein trust of the good journalism. I'm talking NPR, BBC, New York Times, and like not really anything mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I trust those <laughs> institutions. Um, and to, in the Trump presidency, see journalists be getting physically attacked and to see journalism in general be like attacked. <laughs> attacked completely, completely undermined as an institution. It may be in some ways that we're deserving and in other ways that we're not really terrifies yeah. me. Um, but it also speaks, I think, to a, a symptom which deserves attention, which is people's feeling of anti-establishment disenfranchisement, which is worth listening to. So, yeah, I would say the state of people's trust in journalism also breaks me. I think you're completely captivating in everything that you do. To name a few of your projects, we've seen you in Good Girls Revolt, in Flack, opposite Anna Paquin. I, I really enjoyed you in that. Uh, in The Upside with Kevin Hart, uh, then there's the after party, Apple TV Plus, several episodes <laughs> of New Amsterdam, This Is Us, and other TV series, and of course, your current role as Alanis Wheeler in The Handmaid's Tale. And because I've met you before, I know that you're a passionate <laughs> person. So how exactly does that passion that you possess serve you when it comes to harnessing intensity for your roles? Oh, my gosh. 
Um, it doesn't, it doesn't. Okay. So for instance, I'm just gonna, I think there's so many ways to interpret this question, but like sometimes I need to do less and throw it away. I need to like take my foot off the pedal and like just handle these roles with like a light touch and not bring the full force of my life, you know, uh, like New York city, Aries passion to everything. (laughs) Um, but I will say the body of work that you just, uh, I'm proud really of the way that I've been trusted to be someone who can play Alanis Wheeler on Handmaid's Tale shortly after playing this extremely strange <laughs> clown of my own creation named Indigo on the after party okay. is like, I like, I just, I've said the deepest yes to my inner weirdness and people let me do what I want. And that is the thing that I am proudest of. I can't Because you bring intelligence to what you do. Well, That's thank why. you. And also sometimes I bring a lot of stupidity. Yep. But playing Mia Castries on New Amsterdam was like, here I am with all of my sound bowls. Ding dong. Like It was yeah. really such a ridiculous, doofy assignment. And I loved it. And my pride this was not the question, but my pride comes from the fact that I've been invited to play villains, clowns, love interests, um, freedom fighters. I, that's, that's where my, that's where my pride comes from is my, the, the number of crazy souls that live inside of me. And yeah. maybe you can't answer this, but what do you consider your best role to date? And what does best mean to you when I say that? How do you interpret best? Can you even answer that question? Is there anything um, that comes to mind when I say that? My best role to date, the thing that I am proudest of. I'm so proud of yes. this. I'm so proud of Handmaid's Tale because there's a trap. And I don't, I, I mean, I believe the creators of this show would have been. I'm going to say I'm, I'm really, really, really effing proud of Indigo on the after party because she was described on the page as being this like earthy kind of hippie girl. And I was like, don't know how to play that. Don't think that's funny. I'm going to take a swing out of left field. They're never going to cast me as this, but I'll just try it. And I decided to like resuscitate the ghost of Elaine Stritch and do it like that instead. I and love that. Behind I'm the scenes really story. Proud- I love that. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm really proud of any time that I look at the page and I'm like, let me not do the assignment in air quotes as written. Let me not try to get an A at this. Let me like go down, 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 deep into the well, find my inner artist and add to this project something that they couldn't do. Right. Couldn't have imagined. Right. That this isn't just like an extension of the, of the writer's pen, although it should be, it offers them something they didn't think of. And so with Alana Wheeler, the trap, I think the creators are smart enough that they never would have let me fall into this, but the, the trap is to play her as the villain. The trap is to play her as the baddie, right. And to come in and say, you know, Serena, you're in trouble. And I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to 
I think effectively that is what happened. But I think the way that it happened is that I went in and I said, you know what? In Alanis's movie, she's the hero. And she has really good reasons for doing what she's doing. And I'm going to play her with as much heartbreak for the position that she's putting this woman in and as much conviction in her in her doing the right thing as I possibly can. And in that way, play a human being, not like a two-dimensional bad, bad guy. Yeah. You know? I have a question about that uh, further along in the podcast. What criteria do you use for saying yes to a role? I know all roles are different. And so your criteria might differ for different types of roles, but can you share some of the things that you've looked for in the past? I'll tell you, how do I put this without keeping myself from getting a job I need in the future? (laughs) I cannot be bored. I cannot. I am. I am. Willing to live um, like a less, um, I, I'm basically willing to like not be as rich um, because I like the work I'm doing. And I've turned down, I mean, the first job I ever turned down was uh, right off of coming out of New York theater. And I got offered a job that would have paid me over the course of, I mean, this is probably a really gross thing to say, but it would have paid me over the course of several seasons, like millions. Wow, Genevieve. You and couldn't do it. I it was so nothing, boring. I had <clears throat> nothing to go off of, but I was like, basically this job is going to take the end of my twenties and into my thirties. And I'm not willing to give those years in order to memorize the facts of a case and repeat them right. back with no human development that really will keep me going. It's what they call the golden handcuffs. I don't want those. I don't want those. I don't, I'm, I'm not willing to sacrifice the day-to-day experience of my life for a really nice car. And that's what you'd be doing. That's that's what I would be doing. And by the way, I don't have any, any judgment of other people who do that. And some people do it like absolute artists. I'm saying, I don't know how to do that and be happy for me. And that is privilege. And that is um, really dangerous. And also is the result of like not having, you know, an enormous pile of debt. There are just like a lot of different circumstances that make people make a lot of different choices. Saying I'd rather not be that rich. I'd rather be less rich and happy. And on the flip side, how do film and TV makers, managers, what are some of the things they share about the kinds of roles that are a good fit? Well, I love that question because I think I can confidently say that today I, I am I am capable of doing anything. And I think people know that. I'm convinced. Love that. I've done comedies, dramas, network cable. Like it's not, I don't worry about like, oh, they're not going to see me as, I don't worry yeah. about that. Um Sometimes where I think I get into a little bit of trouble is that like, I have grateful to say a weirdly young face and a very old voice. Oh, <laughs> And so sometimes it's like, is she in her twenties or her thirties? Wow. I've know. never thought about that before, but I, that's tricky. My, I get that. Yeah. My first manager told me that he signed me because he knew I could play a doctor. And um, that just had to do with like, and uh, an obvious intelligence, which I appreciated. So I know that's why they were initially drawn to me is they were like, you know, 
look, uh, there are, you know, probably scores more actors who are more talented than I am, but not everyone can convincingly play a doctor. And like a lot of people, by the way, I, I do not think that intelligence makes you a good actor. I think intelligence is often something you have to um, overcome yeah. as an actor because there is nothing more boring than an actor who's living right. in their head. Right, period. right. Period. period. But if you can get out of your head and still come across as smart, you might be in kind of a smaller subsection of the population of actors. So interesting, interesting. What's the industry like now, in your opinion, post Me Too? I'm not saying that we're done with Me Too and we've crossed all the hurdles, but what is the industry like now since Me Too, in your opinion? I will say, um, on like a very granular level, first of all, I just did um, a movie. um, um I just did a movie where I worked with an intimacy coordinator for the first time. Interesting. So that wasn't a thing that existed on Good Girls Revolt. When I did like a ton of nude scenes, I didn't have any, I didn't have any bad experiences with that, but like there was no person who was like, you know, calling me weeks in advance to like talk about what the director had planned out and wanted to accomplish versus like what I was willing to. Yeah. Tell me what, tell us what it's like working with an intimacy coordinator. Okay. It's awesome. I mean, I just like super recommend it because if you're the kind of, I'm going to say, I'm not even going to distinguish this by gender assigned or chosen. I'm just going to say you can always like reject that person on the day and say, get out of the way. I just want to be spontaneous. But like to have someone call you weeks in advance and like, just check in on how you're feeling. Because you are feeling it. You're mentally preparing your. Or you're not, but why not build in an abundance of care around your body, your vulnerability, your sexuality? Like why not care about yourself 200% more than you think you should? Like literally what is there to lose? If what you think there is to lose is like, oh, the the sexiness and spontaneity on set, like don't lose it. Throw, like don't, you know, just, just don't. Yeah. <laughs> and so that person quite literally on, on the phone in advance, like went through all of the scenes that required any kind of, any kind of nudity or, or um, like sexual contact, even if that was a kiss, we went through the script scene by scene. And in this movie, it was like, it, the movie is called, um, which brings me to you. It's I want to hear all about it. Lucy Hale and Matt Wolf. But um, my character had a very heavy sexual presence in the movie. And so we went through every scene. She had already spoken with the director and sort of gotten an idea from him about what he hoped to accomplish and what he hoped to accomplish was not even remotely intended to override what I was willing to do. It was just like blue skying it. This is what it would look like for me. From that conversation, we cultivated a nudity rider, which said, these are the parts of my body that I am willing to show in this movie. These things are absolutely off limits. And also she told me sort of on the day what she would be able to offer from, you know, like pieces of orange tape that would cover my nipples. So there would be no chance that anything was revealed there to breath mints. And so she was just awesome. I just like loved it. And then, and this was also before I had met or had a conversation with the colleague I was going to be doing all of these sex scenes with. So very safe. How do you feel about doing theater these days? And generally speaking, is it on the back burner because of how busy you've been? 
theater will always, 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 always be number one front burner, heart in it completely, completely. My number one love as, um, well, how do I really feel about that? I'm going to withhold that. I, uh, look, theater is the actor's medium there. You know, there were experiences watching Handmaid's Tale where like, I love the, um, I love the show. I love the episodes and I love my performance, but there were times where I was like, Oh, I see how my performance was partially from this take where I tried doing it this way, partially from this take where I tried doing it another way. And it's uncomfortable for me to lose control over how that performance gets executed. Not because it's wrong, not because the director made the wrong choice, but like, I want to be the artist in charge of oh, the show. Oh, that's interesting. Like, Thank you for illuminating that for, for us. Yeah. Who are you dying to play? What kinds of things have you watched recently where you've said to yourself, what a juicy role. I'd love to do something like that. Oh, that's a great question. Again, I'm going to have so much less Brie Descalier about this one. Um, I mean... The first thing that's coming to mind is that like there isn't an episode of Veep that like doesn't just totally destroy me. Like Ianucci's comedy is actual perfection to me. Um, obviously, Succession I think is like so completely. Ooh, he'd be great on Succession. Yeah, it's so funny. People definitely confuse me with shit so all the time. Fun. I never can correct them. You're like, okay, I'm like, thank you fine. So- yeah, yeah. So I want to talk in depth about *Handmaid's Tale*, which we've been talking about uh, throughout the podcast. The final episode of season five is being released this week. We're talking about your role as Alanis Wheeler. How was the role of Alanis explained to you? That's a great question, and one with an evolution. At first, not at all. (laughs) I got a call from my agent. He was like, "There's a part on *Handmaid's Tale*," and all they told me was she's an acolyte. And I was like, what now? I don't even know what that word means. Um, and because, you know, obviously because the show is such a revered institution, it's also like incredibly buttoned up and nobody can know anything. And there's so many NDAs and there's so much secrecy. He was like, listen, there's this part, they're interested in you. They just want to like, see you do this prayer. And I was like, okay. Knowing absolutely nothing. Interesting. The prayer was what my character says when she first meets Serena Joy, when Serena shows up at her house, this is the last scene of episode four. Uh, And I knew absolutely nothing about the context of this scene. So I just made a choice. I made a little tape and I sent it to them. And then I got the job. And I don't know to this day why that is, but of course, having gotten the job before I accepted it, I was like, okay, you know, thankfully I'm at the point of my career where I don't have to just like take everything because it's handed to me. And I want to actually know that if I do this, I can do a good job. So you're going to have to like, give me a little more to go on. So I got on the phone with Bruce Miller, who was so, so, so generous. And we talked for a long time about everything that they had planned for her and her arc over the course of the season. And that's when I was like, well, yeah, we can do this. What was the choice that you made in that tape when you were asked to pray? Such a good question. And maybe it's not tangible. Maybe it's not, it can't be put into words, right? I'm, I pride myself on not making this stuff so airy fairy. I think that as a craft, you can learn it. 
It is like a populist thing. I believe in being a journeyman, a craftsman. I should be able to articulate this. I just don't know if I can remember. I think what I thought was, what, what does it mean to thank God for a blessing? What does it mean to really receive a blessing that changes your life and to thank God so deeply for the gift? I think that's what it was. What's it like being a part of Handmaid's Tale? What is the vibe like? Uh, this, as we say, highly watched, award-winning series with a huge message. What was new? What was something that you hadn't experienced before in terms of stepping on to, into this production and into this crew? cast. The vibe is rad, mostly because people are making a really, really, really somber show. And so when someone yells cut, it's like fun, stupid, bratty, relaxed. Um, Something I had never experienced, you know, look, when you join something like The Handmaid's Tale in season five, you don't want to like come in with a bunch of new ideas. Like this is- (laughs) This is a well-oiled machine. (laughs) Exactly. You sniff around, figure out exactly how you're going to fit seamlessly in with like your, you know, not to like belittle my contribution as an artist, but like you figure out how you're going to add your instrument to the orchestra, not how you're going to rewrite the music. And some things that I had never experienced before were, for instance, like on another show, you might shoot eight to 10 pages in a day. I mean, that's a big day, but, um, Things move quickly. And um, on Handmaids, there is time afforded to making the project. The makeup department gets time. The camera department gets time. And you might only shoot you might only shoot two to four pages. But it has in a to day. be what has to be. Yeah. Um, it has to be what has to be because because quite literally because of the awards it's like you know normally i have to say hair and makeup are like really rushed through their process they're just not really given the equal respect to like the director of photography and on this show it's like hey i i could be responsible for one of your emmys so like we're gonna give you the time mm-hmm. you need um i spent hours and hours and hours in costume fittings with leslie kavanaugh the designer who's a really genius, a genius. Yeah. And then also like something that, listen, getting directed by Brad Whitford, like that's, that's a, uh, that's a Handmaid's Tale original. That is really fun. (laughs) How do you think the series interpretation of Margaret Atwood's book is addressing the issues we're facing as a society today? Oh God, I really don't know how to answer this because like, Well, the reason that I don't know how to answer it is because, like, I think the show is wildly popular among conservatives. So I'm like, gross. Am I feeding the problem? I don't know how to answer that one. I mean, obviously, I think it's like it's certainly not um, it's certainly not created by people who would like to perpetuate problems having to do with women's rights. But I don't know that it's not getting eaten up by people who want to perpetuate that. Oh gosh, I'm really not sure. It's I a good I'm point. It's a good point. Worse. The characters of Handmaids are, you know, otherworldly yet familiar. And you were speaking about this a bit earlier. What familiar characteristics did you decide to bring to Alanis Wheeler? I mean, I honestly, I, I don't know a lot of these women personally. 
So I was trying not to do like a quote unquote received notion of what it means to be like a modern suburban um, conservative right. white woman. But like, I would say there was a sprinkle of that mixed in. You know, I personally don't play a handmaid, so um, that wasn't my assignment. But like, I think there just was some sort of entitled correctness about the point of view yes. of Alanis. Yes. You know? Yes, yes, yes. And Alanis Wheeler straddles two worlds. I think we were talking a little bit about that earlier. How do you describe her place in the world? I think that she, uh, I, I, I think that she, as a woman living in Toronto, feels like, well, look, there is, you know, in this, in the fifth season of this show, people sometimes lose touch with the founding premise of it, which is that there is an apocalyptic threat to human fertility. And that is the generating purpose of all of the extremity of a place like Gilead. It doesn't come from like, we just felt like it, or, or maybe it does in a subliminal way. My, the point of view that I really adopted was like, there is one place in the world where we have seen a solution. So do I believe in women's rights on a good day? Maybe, but we're not having a good day. We need to do what it takes to keep women alive so that they have rights to have. And what I have seen is that the social structures adopted by this society appear to work. Do I think that it's absolutely necessary that we all wear those dreadful conservative clothes? I don't know. I think I still get to have a statement belt. <laughs> but like such a statement belt. <laughs> I sort of such get to like Right. Because I'm not living in Gilead. I can kind of um, yes, pick and choose. Yes. Alanis's relationship with her husband is quite curious. What's their deal? Okay. It's hot as <laughs> hell. I think that Mr. and Mrs. Wheeler have like an enormous <laughs> amount of kink. Uh, I think that she is like aware. That he's definitely in weapons of mass destruction she knows he knows where the bodies are hidden and she is fucking into it. And, um, you know, I think what becomes sort of the, the arc of their relationships over the course of the season is that she wants to be in this relationship with like an enormous amount of polarity where he knows best and he knows best and he knows best and he knows best until he at the helm makes decisions that are wrong. And that she knew better than. And I think that that is heartbreaking. Are we seeing Alanis manipulate Serena slowly and gradually as part of a well thought out plan? Or has she behaved spontaneously in response to Serena's arrival? I think a lot of people assume that like I saw Serena and was immediately like, right. I need to steal that baby. And that's just not interesting to me as an actor. I think that the most interesting choices to make are the most innocent ones. So if I end up at point B, I need point A to be as far away from that as possible. So when Serena shows up, genuinely meeting a modern saint who I am delighted to protect and take care of and provide for and soothe and nurture and honor and introduce and it's only when she starts making these decisions that I see in these fractions of moments along the way that are wildly disappointing from the person I thought she was and the person she is, that my point of view changes and I start to feel genuine anger that she is betraying her own mission by not walking the walk. 
And I tried to, as the actor, make all of those decisions on screen, in scenes, in the script, in the moment. So that is little like kind of, so that I don't know so much. So that it's all kind of like revealed, taking me by. How would you put Alanis's stance on women's fertility into words? Desperately endangered. Desperately endangered, requiring of the deepest protection, essential, essential to our survival and worth protecting and nourishing no matter the cost, because without which we are done for. I could not play a villain. I had to assume a point of view that I could fully stand behind with an extremity like that, that would... um, justify the actions I take. Otherwise, I'm just making up being a bad guy. It's not a human being, you know? How do you think Handmaid's Tale shines a light on current women's struggles with fertility, stigmas around fertility, supposed societal norms, and what is supposedly not normal around fertility? This is such a valid question. And the truth is, I don't know. I really feel like county to county, we across the country, we live in a completely different world. I mean, I know people for whom it is like, you know, it feels scary to want to be a stay at home mom that feels somehow like they're failing or bad or, or like not, like not supported. And then, you know, you know, two of my closest friends have undergone IVF by use of donor egg and a surrogate in their late forties. Like we are just all coming at this differently. So in terms of like national trends, it's difficult for me to speak to, except to say that, um, I don't know, we all deserve the right to do this differently. Well said. What's next for Alanis? I mean, where we find, you know, this is season five. What do we think is going to happen next? I think, I think season six is the spinoff where Mr. and Mrs. Wheeler go on the road and make a porno. (laughs) Okay, on that note, this is where we wrap with your uh, six favorite things. What are your six current obsessions, Genevieve? Um, Oh, I don't want to overthink this, so I'm going to just roll with it. Literally front and center in my life right now are my not one but two Christmas trees that I erected in my home on Halloween. Thank you. Yes, this is my universe. That is so me. I should have done the same thing. See, now that I know you go Halloween, Christmas tree. Yeah, that's right. Every year it gets earlier and earlier for me. Okay, so thing number one, I have six things. Thing number one, my two Christmas trees. Where are you getting these Christmas trees? Are they? They're fake. These are fake. fake, But like, I'll get a real one. This is just like for now. Why? Because I'm an adult. I make the rules. I am the architect of my happiness and I am a genius. Thing number two. I am currently training to be a somatic healer. So somatic healing is a way at getting to your client's trauma through the body. I mean, including the brain, but basically, you know, Freudian talk therapy being one way of doing it and going through trapped trauma in the tissue being another way of doing it. Why am I doing that? Because I think that when my life is full and my interests are deeply satisfied. My whole vibration is higher. My acting is better, all of it. So I'm a student again, which feels 
Very really cool. cool. Um, let's see what else. I just went to Hawaii for the first time, which was absolutely transcendent and um, probably nothing I'll ever do again because, oh my God, I don't know if you realize this, but Hawaii is yet another five hours from no, LA. I didn't realize like, it was that far from LA. I thought it was close. It's so far away. So I'm so glad I did it. I'll never do it again. I, I honestly, I've never been a person who burns sage clean a space, but I've been doing that a lot recently and really, really trusting it. And actually the scent of sage has changed for my nose where I think like, I don't know, maybe impurity used to feel safer to me than it does now. And now I'm like really excited about like I have to say that I was not into the smell of sage myself, but maybe you do have to spend some time saging to kind of get past that. I think you have to like make peace with the things that aren't good for you and aren't serving you anymore before sage oh. can smell good. I'm going to like just oh, throw that's... that out there. Um, my friend Stevie created this incredible holiday gift called the Embodied Journal. I'm holding it up right now. It's amazing. And every day you write in the Embodied Journal, you basically just pour your heart out. And then there are a bunch of prompts that have to do with things that you can do to get physical that aren't just about writing. I love that. I know that there's some journals like that that exist, but none that incorporate physicality, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, totally. Um, shout out to Stevie. Every morning I have been taking 30 minutes to squeeze a fresh lemon into 32 ounces of water and just sitting with that for 30 minutes in my system before anything oh, else. It's like this way of like peacefully being with myself and like making sure that I am having water. I don't know. Oh, I have been buying these oversight. I know you love we the story that's coming out i love the blazer and that story that's yes oh my god that is so perfect. I, that's the, when the i saw you I'm in that i'm like that's all i like wearing now in like blazer form and coat that's form so what color is the sandra you can layer you can wear like a you can wear a a, a t-shirt a crop top yeah. underneath it if you're in LA, a t-shirt you can wear a scarf underneath it if you're in new york i've just gone like all the way full-blown dying keaton not looking back not collecting $200 <laughs> like that's it what color is the sandro yes. coat by the way just so we can find it camel let's quickly talk about which brings me to you. Is there anything else you can tell us about this upcoming project? Yeah, it's a really, really, really sweet um, uh, romantic comedy with Lucy Hale and Nat Wolf. They are totally irresistible. I get to make out with Nat Wolf, which was not, not <laughs> fun. And um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure when that'll be out, but we just. And what is Flack coming back or not? I wish I never heard that announcement. So it's not, oh, I love that show. I loved you in that show. I thought you were so great. Genevieve, it was a dream catching up with you. I adore you. This is the most intelligent series, interesting, provocative series of questions I have been asked, like maybe in my history of interviews. Well done you. I'm so excited about listening to all episodes of your podcast. Thank you so much. You know, it's been on my list for us to sit down and have this conversation. I'm so glad we did. And we will do it again in the future. Thank you, friend.